Hey everybody, welcome to Artist Soapbox. Artist Soapbox is a podcast featuring triangle area artists talking about their work, their plans, their manifestos. I am your host, Tamara Kassane. Have you ever wondered what it's like to be a podcaster? Does arts journalism interest you? If so, you're in luck. My guest today is Lauren Van Hamert, arts journalist and podcaster with RDU on stage. Lauren and I discuss her journey to launching RDU on stage, the behind the scenes of podcasting, tips for podcast guests, best practices for aspiring arts journalists, and more. Also, you'll hear some great stories about Lauren's conversations with William Ivy Long and Kristen Chenoweth. So cool. RDU On Stage focuses on theater in the Triangle area of North Carolina and includes online reviews, video, and podcast interviews. It's something I look forward to enjoying every week. So go ahead and press the pause button and subscribe right now to RDU On Stage. Lauren and her team are wonderful. Lauren Van Hamert is a graduate of Indiana University Bloomington, where she majored in journalism with a minor in theater. Prior to graduation, Van Hamert hosted her own weekly talk show on public radio WDNA Miami and worked as a production intern for As the World Turns. A native of Miami, Florida, Van Hamert's love of theater started at an early age during a New York trip when her father took her to see The Revival of Oklahoma, The Music Man starring Dick Van Dyke, and Peter Pan starring Sandy Duncan. She currently lives in Cary, North Carolina with her husband and two children, where she has been an advocate for arts education in the schools and sensory-friendly experiences. She is a member of the American Theatre Critics Association and host of the RDU Onstage podcast. Follow her on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at OnlyLaurenArt. See links in the show notes for more. Enjoy the episode. Hi, Lauren. Hi, how are you? I'm good. (laughs) Thank you so much for being here. I'd like to start by talking about language. In our pre-interview phone call, you said that you prefer to be called an arts journalist rather than a theater critic or reviewer. Why is that? It's semantics. I'm I'm, I'm really going to start with this. I really think it's semantics, and maybe it's just my own hang-up about this, but I feel like the word critic and being critical has such a negative connotation to it, like... We are going to the theater to write and review and be overtly critical about a medium that we all really love. I haven't met a theater critic yet who doesn't love the theater. And yet the idea of being overtly critical about something kind of bothers me. And I also feel like for me, although I did start out just writing reviews, now most of my time is spent doing interviews and videos and having conversations with people about the theater and very little of my time is spent doing reviews. So I feel like the term arts journalist, and it's kind of funny, that term was kind of thrust upon me by or imposed upon me by other people on social media who would refer to me as an arts journalist. But the first time I saw it written, I thought, yeah, That makes much more sense to me because I feel like it covers much more the scope of what I'm doing. And it's a much more positive description of what I'm doing because I really do love the theater. Mm -hmm. Not that all my reviews are positive and, and I don't think they have to be. I think you can be constructive in your criticism of the theater. But I think when you say theater critic, it just, I think of some old stodgy 80 year old white man sitting there behind his notebook taking <laughs> taking mm-hmm. notes and overtly being critical and negative and and that's never what i intend to do and knowing the theater critics in this area that's not what they're trying to do either we all really love the theater so for me i prefer arts journalist having the word critic <laughs> in in that actual like job description 
automatically sets up something that's very oppositional. And, and confrontational. And confrontational. And as an artist, you prepare yourself to read something from a theater critic with your armor on. Like there's a there's a, some anxiety that comes with seeing that a quote critic has come to see your work. I think we can lose sight of the constructive pieces in a review because we're so hyper aware of the potential for criticism that we see. And so I really like this reframing to call someone an arts journalist versus a theater critic. It's like a level of professional standards are in place and that the arts are something worthy of journalistic coverage and inquiry. And and integrity. And integrity. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So I'm totally on board with this. And and I'm much more partial. I know we'll get into this in a little bit, but I'm much more partial to conversation. I was very critical of the show, King Kong. I am more critical of shows that are professionally done on Broadway or national tours that come through because generally there's millions of dollars and lots of professional people and teams behind those shows. So I am much more critical of those shows than I am of local theatrical productions, Mm -hmm. but I was very critical of the show King Kong. And recently as a podcast guest, the assistant choreographer was my guest. She was choreographing Memphis in Fayetteville, and she came on my podcast as a guest to talk about Memphis. And after the microphones were turned off, we were talking about some New York shows. I did not realize, and on my, re- I, I knew she had worked on several Broadway productions, a lot, of, one of which I liked a lot, but I didn't realize she had worked on King Kong, and I had made a comment about King Kong. And she said, what didn't you like about it? I worked on that show and we really worked hard Mm. to make it what we wanted to. And she and I actually sat down and we had this wonderful conversation. And she said, I almost wish this was the kind of criticism that critics did where you had a conversation and said, here's what worked for me. And here's what didn't. Because when I hear you say it, It takes on a much different tone than just reading it on the page. And so I kind of thought, and that is why I'm having these podcast conversations, (laughs) because that, I think, means more to the theater community than just, I liked it, I didn't like it kind of review. So Right. Well, it's it's two way rather than one way, which mm-hmm. is I think hard for both people. It it isolates us rather than connects us, which I know that you are really interested in these kind of forging like these the kinds of connections. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so let's let's go back in time a little bit and see how all of this arts journalism stuff started. Would you talk about your journey? When was the seed planted for you? From the time I was literally five years old and saw The Sound of Music at Radio City Music Hall. My dad took me to a um, movie revival of some anniversary of The Sound of Music, and he took me to the movie Sound of Music, and we saw it at Radio City Music Hall on that grand screen in that gorgeous theater. And I think that planted the, the seed for my love of theater and music, but never did I see that as a viable career option? (laughs) Why ever not? (laughs) I don't know. But I just always looked at that as a hobby. I mean, I dabbled in musical theater in high school, and I studied classical piano, and I always enjoyed it as a hobby. It was an outlet. It was a release for me, but never, this is what I want to do. However, from the time I think I was probably in junior high school, I wanted to be a journalist. I knew that that was very clear for me that I wanted to be a journalist. And I remember I was around 15 or 16 years old. I didn't have my driver's license yet. So I know that it had to be maybe younger than 16. And I was standing in the kitchen with my mom and 
this dates me, ages me, but I loved Phil Donahue. So we were probably watching the Donahue show or listening to some talk show. And I turned to her and said, hmm, mom, I want my own talk show. And she, because she's always been encouraging and supportive and wonderful to me, she was kind of like, okay, go out, make it happen. Like she never said no to me. It never occurred to me that this was an impossible dream. And so before she knew it, I had contacted the local public access radio station and spoke to this wonderful, I think she's still the director there, Maggie Payea, who was the programming director. And she agreed to give me my own teenage talk show, which in that, at that time in Miami was a first. And I shared the show with a young man named Albert who came on after I started And Albert went on to become a famous Spanish televangelist. He called himself Padre Alberto on Telemundo. And it's kind of funny because he got his start on Teen Talk (laughs) (laughs) at WDNA Public Radio. (laughs) And so we did that for two years. I went to college. I studied journalism, which was no surprise to people. I minored in theater because I loved it. And I wanted to learn. I had no interest in being on the stage, but I did want to learn about directing and writing, which I really did enjoy as a hobby. <laughs> and um, and as soon as I graduated college, I got a job as a morning news writer at what is now the Fox affiliate. Back then, there it was an independent station in Miami. I was a morning news writer and I really hated everything about it. (laughs) And I was so disappointed because, you know, all these dreams I had of becoming a journalist, I was like, oh my gosh, this is what I've wanted to do my entire life. And now I'm doing it and I hate it. And so I quit with the idea that I was going to move to Chicago. And at that time, my dream job was working for Oprah I don't know why this was my dream job, but it was. I just thought I'm going to work for Oprah and she's going to make everything better. Right. She, well, she does do that. <laughs> she's so. going to wait for Magic Wand <laughs> <That's right. laughs> and make everything better for me. That's right. And um, as fate would have it, uh, Hurricane Andrew hit Florida and destroyed my parents' home, my childhood home. And I ended up staying in Florida and kept kind of... I held on to the pipe dream of moving to Chicago for several months. And as it became very clear that the rebuilding process was going to take a really long time, my dreams of Chicago just faded away. And I at first helped my mom keep her business afloat and then actually went to work for the Red Cross, which was doing such amazing work down there. And so my journalism career was diverted. I kind of say it was diverted for the next 30 plus years. And it wasn't because I went to work for the Red Cross. I ended up getting married in that time and having two children and made kind of a conscious decision to become a stay-at-home mom. We moved to Raleigh. It was really important for me to be home with them and enjoy those precious child-rearing toddler years. They're potty trained now. No, um, <laughs> that's right. that's right. no they're so much has changed. So much has changed. Right. They're driving. They're independent <laughs> people. My son's uh, just finished his sophomore year of college, and oh, so wow. they don't need me quite as much. Um, they'll always need me as a parent, but they don't need me to be there twenty four seven taking care of them, putting them to bed, reading them bedtime stories, and so you know, kind of as they got older. Over the last few years, I was kind of like, okay, what do I want to do now? What do I want to be when I grow up? And about a year ago, I saw an ad for Broadway World and it just hit me. Oh my gosh, I can be a journalist and marry my love of theater and write about this is amazing. Mm -hmm. And so I started working for them and then in January started my own my own website and podcast doing the same thing, but kind of expanding the coverage and Mm -hmm. That's it's it's a full circle. It's kind of funny because I said to my mom actually as recently as last night, this is a full circle moment for me because I'm right back to where I started right. when I was 16 years old because my podcast is very similar to my radio to Teen Talk uh, in that it's an interview show, 
Teen Talk, I, I talked a lot about different topics, but I did cover the theater. I mean, I interviewed Charles Honey Coles, who was a legendary tap dancer. A lot of people know him from his appearance in the movie Dirty Dancing. He was the band's leader, but he was a legendary tap dancer, and he was one of the first interviews I ever had. Back then, Emilio and Gloria Stefan, they had a bar mitzvah band called the Miami Sound Machine. It was before (laughs) Gloria was Gloria. And um, John Cicada, I think he had just graduated from Miami High School or something. And so uh, Emilio was a guest (laughs) that I had on my little talk show. So um, it's kind of funny. It's a real full circle moment for me doing this podcast because it feels just like teen talk except it's 34 years later and now my children my daughter is actually the age I was when I had teen talk let's talk a little bit about your podcast RDU on stage you are a creative person clearly you 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 write you podcast you're a visual artist you trained musically in voice and in piano Um, You have some theater training. (laughs) Why did you choose theater? And I'm especially curious about this because, correct me if I'm wrong, but it doesn't seem like you are actively making theater right now yourself. Why spend your time talking to people who are doing this? (laughs) Because they're much better at it than I ever was. (laughs) Um, I I should say I was, I I really was a good musician. I was a good pianist at the time. Um, But I really was never a good actress. I was never good at theater. Maybe I could have been a decent director. It's funny, my senior year of college, I had a final project due and I had picked M. Butterfly. Mm -hmm. And I remember my professor saying, I hate that show because I never understood that play. And I said, well, I hope to break it down for you and make it make sense. Mm -hmm. And after I did it, I got an A in the class and he said, oh, it finally makes sense to me. Like I get what I get what he was doing. I get what he was writing about. At least your interpretation of it is very clear for me. So I feel like I maybe could have been a good director. Mm -hmm. But like I said, that was never really a career option for me. But when I started working for Broadway World, what I was finding is I was very limited in what I could do. So I would go, I'd review a show, or I'd do these interviews, and they'd be very light and fluffy and brief. (laughs) Very short. Right. Easy to digest. They never went really in-depth. The Broadway world audience doesn't want that or expect that. Very little room for video interviews Mm -hmm. on Broadway world. They don't quite know what to do with video interviews, but what I was finding, whether I went to the theater or I was interviewing someone at the theater is I was having these fabulous conversations with this community about their process, about their mindset, about the choices they were making in their seasons, about just things that were really interesting to me. And I thought, I need to do more of that. There needs to be a way to elevate what is happening here and give these theater makers a platform to really tell their own story without it being kind of this fluffy article or this like brief synopsis of what the show is about. And so I had the idea for starting RDU on stage really as a platform for doing expanded interviews, doing expanded coverage, bringing more critics on with me who would have a different voice. I didn't want it to be a vanity project. Mm -hmm. I wanted to give other people an opportunity to write and to be emergent theater critics. There's not a whole lot of room for emergent writers. Mm -hmm. There's no place for them to practice their craft. And so I thought, gosh, if I start this, that, that, that does that. And it gives the theater community a place where they can tell their stories and I can really tell the stories that are interesting to me and that I want to share because I think there is so much undiscovered talent and undiscovered theater in our community. Mm -hmm. I think there is, I I don't think the general public has any idea. Everybody knows about Deepak. A lot of people know about North Carolina theater. Those are great theaters. 
I had not really ever heard of the Justice Theater Project or Little Green Pig Mm -hmm. or all of these smaller theaters and companies that are doing really innovative, great work. And so I just wanted to have a platform to showcase that. And when I started doing kind of the market research, because I don't jump into anything blindly, Mm -hmm. (laughs) when I started kind of asking the community, like, is there a need? First of all, is there a need for this? At first, I really just thought it was going to be a website. I thought, is there a need for this website? And if there is a need, what else would you like to see that maybe isn't there that you'd like to have? And um, somebody said, oh, you should do a podcast so we can have these conversations in a very public way and people can hear them. And I thought, ooh, that makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. And so that's how the podcast was born. That's how the website was born, really just as a way to expand the coverage of the theater community here by doing reviews by doing interviews. There's a lot of really good review sites in our area. So there were that seemed to be covered, but there wasn't really a site that did the reviews coupled with interviews, coupled with a podcast that would kind of provide all of that. And so that's what I want an RDU on stage to be. And I think we're getting there. <laughs> I think we're we're almost there. There's a lot I'd like to see, but um, I, I think we're getting there. And it's exciting to see how the community has embraced it so much. First of all, I want to thank you for your podcast, because I do think that this kind of coverage is just a wonderful gift to the theater artists in this community. And I know you approach everything that you do with such integrity and respect. And so thank you so much for that. What's it like to be a podcaster, Lauren? Oh, man. <laughs> How much time do you have? Um, you know, when I called you initially, and I have to tell your audience how gracious and wonderful you were with your time and your um, sharing of knowledge when I first spoke to you, and, and I spoke to you before our do on stage was a thing. You tried to tell me how hard this is. <laughs> I know you did, but maybe I wasn't listening because I had no idea how time consuming and hard it is. I do a great deal of research with every podcast episode. I really think research is for me the key to doing a good interview. Preparation, I think, is super important. And so that by itself is time consuming. The interviews are a joy. It's mm-hmm. my favorite thing to talk to theater people. And I could do that. I do do that almost every day. And I think that's a gift. But then the editing process and teasing out what I might find interesting or what they might think is interesting that may not be interesting to listeners. T- kind of trying to tease that out and figure out a, a balance of what's important. And also, I think to balance out, you know, people don't go on a talk show unless they have something to promote. So obviously, people are coming on to RDU on stage, and I'm asking them to come to promote their shows. Because again, I want to give that platform that visibility Mm -hmm. to theaters to say, come to see our show, listen to this great, these great artists. But at the same time, I don't want to do a 30-minute infomercial about a show. Right. I want to have more in-depth conversations. And so it's teasing out those interesting parts of the show and saying, let's talk about representation on stage or let's talk about gay representation on stage. What does that look like? Is is it a problem? Why is Broadway behind the times on that? So having those conversations and then at the end of the day, yes, we're going to promote your show in the process of having that conversation, but I don't want it to be just a 30-minute commercial for how great your show is and how much time you're putting into it because hopefully that's just a given. Right, (laughs) right. And we want to use the podcast medium. It is built to be evergreen. Because once you put it up there, then it's up there and it lasts and people can go back and listen to episodes that are two years old or six months old. And so you want to have content that they'll want to listen to two years from now and six months from now. Well, and I think to get an insight into the creative process, into somebody's career, if they've had a a 
fantastic or long, lengthy, beautiful career, um, to get that insight through those conversations, I think is really a beautiful thing. And to document it, one of my favorite local interviews was with Ira David Wood, both Ira David Woods, yeah. <laughs> Ira David Wood the third, Ira David Wood the fourth, mother, um, father and son, talking about their life in the theater, and it was to promote the show, A Life in the Theater, which they were both starring in. But to hear David talk about his life in the theater, which has spanned decades, that is a gift for me to witness. Mm-hmm. It is the most listened to podcast episode that I've done. So I'm guessing other people think it's a gift too to hear him tell those stories before he retires from theater in the park. I think that that's really special. So that's a great example where we were promoting a show. Yes, but we were having this great conversation about his career, their relationship, Ira's take on stepping into the role of Scrooge, kind of working with his father, how that relationship dynamic works. It's really, um, those are my most interesting conversations. It's funny that you say that because I remember that episode and I did not, until you mention it, even remember that it was associated with a show. And that might be because time has passed. And that's the brilliance of, 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 not my podcast, but that is the brilliance when you craft the podcast in a certain way that you don't want people to remember, oh, it was a 30 minute, because then it dates itself. It becomes kind of an archived episode that's no longer relevant. That episode is still down. I mean, it's kind of funny, but when people listen to the most recent episodes and then go back on the episode list and they look at that one and they're like, oh, let me listen to that one. (laughs) It's really interesting because it doesn't, date itself just because at the end we plugged a show that they happen to be in. It it really is talking about his career and, and their relationship, which is really a beautiful, special thing to right. encapsulate. <laughs> and I feel like I, I don't know either of those two men. And I feel like I have a relationship with them now. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't know them if we crashed into each other on the street. But hearing about all the things that you mentioned, I feel a certain artistic closeness to them. And I think that's part of the storytelling that we do that's kind of folded into the podcasts. But there's also something about actually hearing somebody's voice that I think at least affects me on a a deeper level. And so I think the other beautiful thing about podcasting is that we actually get to hear the variability of the human voice and not only the word choice, but the patterns and the jokes and everything related to that. It's funny you say that because William Ivy Long is one of my favorite people to interview. And I've now interviewed him twice for Broadway World, um, once for RDU on stage. And one of those times was actually in his studio. And it was just me and him in his studio chatting. And the first time I interviewed him for Broadway World, it was a written piece. And I did record it. Because I record every I record every interview. They know I'm recording, but most of the time it's not for broadcast. It's just for me to listen back so I can transcribe it. And that way I don't spend my entire interview taking notes. Right. I can really listen to what they're saying and engage with them and then listen to it back later and pull the quotes I want for the article. Well, in his case, I remember listening to the audio back and thinking he'd be so better at telling his story than I would. Mm. Anything I write in my article is not going to capture the essence of this really interesting, talented, I think he's a beautiful person, beautiful man. He is a character and I can't paint a picture of that character. I can give you maybe a glimpse in my writing, but I'm really not that good a writer to really encapsulate who he is. And so the next time I interviewed him, I actually said, I want to interview you on video Mm. because I want people to see and hear what I was seeing and hearing or what I was hearing in that first interview. So the second interview, which was in his studio, which I wasn't able to air for a really long time. I actually had to sit on it for six months because 
um, we didn't realize that we were sitting in front of the Beetlejuice drawings <laughs> and we were, you know, he was sharing some Beetlejuice proprietary information that he wasn't supposed to share, but um, it, it did end up fine. And, and six months after I did it, we, I was able to share it, but I felt like I got a little bit of a glimpse of him in that video, which was only six minutes long. And then after the video came out, I, I called his assistant and said, I really would like to have him on my podcast so I can have an expanded conversation with him and really capture audibly. I was going to say capture on tape, but again, that, that dates me because nothing's on tape anymore. Um, but really capture audibly who he is. I mean, he's told his story in a lot of other platforms, but give him a chance. He had this wonderful, special relationship with Paul Green. I will never have the opportunity to meet Paul Green. That was his uncle, Paul. So to be able to give him a chance to talk about that and that person who really was so influential in our community's theatrical history is really a gift. So I love the podcast platform because it gives people a chance to share their creative process, tell their own story, and plug their show in mm-hmm. the process. Mm-hmm. Have you noticed any patterns with your guests? And I'm I'm not saying this to call people out, but rather as a as something to help artists who will be on podcasts in the future <laughs> or who will share their voices in this way. I've noticed that it is very challenging for most artists I've talked to to describe their work. Mm. I was a visual artist before. I was a podcaster before I, when I first moved to Raleigh, I started making jewelry and I became a visual artist. And because I was a trained journalist, I could write about my own work. And I thought everybody could write about their work, but I learned quickly because I'd have these young people come and they'd want to spend time in my studio with me, or they'd want to talk to me or interview me or apprentice with me or intern with me. I realized very quickly Nobody knows how to write anymore. They're coming out of college as really wonderful artists, and they're good at their craft. They're not good at business. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) They're not good at marketing themselves. And a lot of them had the attitude, well, I will hire somebody else to do that for me. That's wonderful if you can afford that luxury, but you still have to be able to communicate to that person what your brand is. Right, right. And and I was shocked that people couldn't do that. And so I think for artists to sit down and maybe craft an artist statement, if they don't have one, some theater people, they have bios, but they don't have an artist statement mm-hmm. to figure out how to verbalize to non-theater people what the heck they're talking about. Because mm-hmm. sometimes people speak in these theater terms. It's jargony. Yeah. Yeah. And it's kind of like, yeah, nobody knows what that means. So break it down for me, please. Mm -hmm. So I I think to be able to just (laughs) describe your creative process for dummies, like, Mm -hmm. (laughs) like for, for people listening who don't have a visual to fall back on, because in the podcast platform, we don't have visuals where we can say, this is what it looks like. It's funny. I did a podcast episode. I really like these Hatch show print posters. I think they are interesting and fascinating. And the story of Hatch show print itself is interesting. The fact that they have a relationship with the Durham Performing Arts Center is really fascinating to me. And the fact that they print up posters They're not for sale. Mm -hmm. Most people don't even know they're printed for the Durham Performing Arts Center for every artist, every show, every thing that comes through the Durham Performing Arts Center. There's a hatch print for it. To tell that story audibly when it's such a visual story to tell Mm -hmm. is really tough. And when my husband and I listened to the podcast episode, because I was so excited to share that podcast my husband's like, it, it, it's losing something. So I think having guests be able to speak in visual terms that are able to be understood by somebody who is not in your field 
that is probably the best gift yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can you can give or learn. And that's a learned skill. And I struggle with this myself. It's very hard to talk about what is so close to ourselves. And then that hurdle that needs to be jumped over, it, it can look different. For some people, it's anxiety and a feeling that your art isn't like worth talking about. Some people just don't have enough distance to even be able to distinguish what they do from what other people do. Some people think it's just not that interesting, even though it's really interesting. Right, right. You know, if you're not an artist, what makes an artist tick is really interesting. The evolution of play is interesting. I think people think you show up and there's the play and wow, it just happened overnight. But all the things that go into making that piece, where did you come up with the idea for this piece? You know, why would you think that this is an interesting story to tell? And why is it an important story to tell right now? Right. I think all those questions are more interesting, I think, to listeners. <laughs> well, they certainly are yeah. to us. Right? They're, they're interesting <laughs> to us. But I think if you can break it down in a way that's relatable and accessible for people who aren't in the arts, it just does a better service to the art that you're trying to promote right? because it makes it accessible. It's not like you're up here on a pedestal because you're an artist and you must have a brain that works different than everybody else. And I am a lay people, lay person who has no idea what you're talking about. And I think if we want to draw audiences in or we want to, whether you're a visual artist or you're a theater artist, you're not just marketing your shows to other artists. You're marketing your shows to the public and to be able to communicate why they should spend their time and money to come see your show versus the Avengers movie is you need to be able to make that compelling argument. I think. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) I think it's a, it's a form of advocacy, right. To be able to talk about your work. Great word. And the finances associated with it and the time commitment and the motivation, because how can we expect people who don't make this work to know those things unless we talk about those things. There's There are many occupations that I know nothing about. And so I don't have somebody in that field really break it down for me in the way that you're talking about. I won't have the same kind of appreciation that I would if we had a, a heart-to-heart about everything that goes into that particular job. Sharing that, educating, educating the public and educating other artists and educating community members, I think it's really important. Back back in the old days, we, we had radio shows. We had radio talk shows. So you people were used to that format. And then we got away from that. And we got into this whole YouTube generation where everything is videos, everything is curated, everything is curated pictures on Instagram or curated stories on Facebook. And it's a visual story. Mm. And so now that podcasting is becoming more and more popular and we're going back to this audible platform, I think people just have to hone those skills on describing what they do. Hmm. You're not going to be on my podcast and say in 140 characters or less what your show's about because we've got a 30-minute show. So we need to cover more than that and have a conversation about it. And not just about the show, but about the whys and the hows behind the show. I want to switch a little bit from the guests to what you see as some best practices for emerging arts journalists. What makes like a good interview? What what do you take into consideration? The first element of any good interview, any good journalism is being prepared. Doing your research, doing your homework. It takes time. I get it. (laughs) But I think doing the preparation and doing the research and being knowledgeable about what you're talking about does so much to disarm your guests because some of my guests have been interviewed a lot. And so coming on my show is just one of, you know, Kristen Chenoweth, the day I interviewed her, I interviewed her at 530 in the afternoon I can imagine she probably had done 10 interviews by the time she got to mine. Mm. Because if you're imagining they're on some sort of press junket to promote their tour or their show or whatever it is. So when you talk about these high profile interviews, they've done a lot of these. 
And so if you're prepared, it disarms them in the most beautiful way. When I spoke to Kristen, we didn't start out talking about Wicked. We didn't start out talking about Glenda or her voice. I realized through my research that her passion project is running a camp for young people in Oklahoma to learn about the theater every summer. And so that's where we started our interview. And that set the tone for the rest of the interview where she was just comfortable and lovely with me. And it wasn't just this question, answer, question, answer. It was, oh my gosh, I'm so glad you asked me about this because this is something I'm really proud of. Mm. And we were able to get into her childhood and why that theater in Oklahoma that bears her name now means so much to her. What were her parents thinking when they sent her to voice class? I mean, she didn't grow, she grew up as far away from Broadway as a person could probably grow up. And so to go from there to having this beautiful career that she has, I wanted to tell that story. And yes, we talked about Glenda and Wicked and her songs and her music. But that other part of the story was really interesting and one that I don't think people have read before, at least not in one place. Right. <laughs> and so so I think preparation is key because it, it, it gets them to realize that you have a respect for them because you've taken the time to figure them out. And so you're asking, people say, I ask probing questions. A guest the other day said, why are you asking me such probing questions? It's not because I'm being probing. It's because I've done my homework and I really want to know something deeper. The other thing I'm, I'm learning or I've been reminded of doing this is there is a trust element to interviewing someone. They are putting their trust in you. And if you've done a good job during the interview and you've and you're prepared sometimes they will share information with you that is off the record i've had many people say to me this is off the record and then they share some juicy thing with me that another journalist might run with and say, ooh, that's really cool. That's right. something juicy or interesting or whatever. And they would run with that. And so I think holding on to information, getting people's trust, trying to tease out what people really want to share and what maybe they don't really want to share. I think knowing how to figure that out, or even if you have a question about it, being mindful enough to say, you shared this with me and I just want to double check that you right. actually said what you want to say because I don't want to put you in a bad light or a bad position or affect the people you love or or people that you've worked with. Building the trust and maintaining the relationship will get you invited back to the party again for a second or third interview. Case in point, going back to William Ivy Long, we sat in his studio and he's very, he was very proud at the time of the work he had done on Beetlejuice. And Beetlejuice had not even come out in previews. They had not opened in Washington, D.C. yet. Nobody even knew who Beetlejuice was going to be played by. And he shared with me the drawings of the set. He shared with me the fabrics of the costumes. <laughs> he, I have a picture of me holding the Beetlejuice umbrella um, because they were unpacking it as I was there. And I was like, can I hold it? Because I'm such a theater nerd. And I just want to hold it. I can't. <laughs> can you take a picture of me with it, please? <laughs> and so, and and he was very generous. He was like, you can take pictures of anything. And there's a whole rack of Alex Brightman's co costumes. So I knew that that day, you know, oh, I know who's playing Beetlejuice, mm -hmm. even though nobody else does. And then I left the studio that day with all of these pictures on my phone and called his assistant and said, I'm feeling uneasy mm. because during our conversation and on video, he shared a lot of information with me that I'm not sure I'm supposed to have. I just want to know what information can I put out there and what information can I not? And so 
his assistant came back to me and said, you really need to hold this because it's not supposed to be out there yet. And then in October, when Beetlejuice opened in Washington, D.C., I came back to him and I said, are we there yet? Like, can I put it out? Because I'm seeing all these wonderful things. And he said, no, not yet. And then he said, circle back around in January. And in January, I circled back around. And not only did they give me their blessing to do the interview and show the interview, but Warner Brothers actually let me use the production, the professional production photos. I didn't have to use my telephone photos. Mm. They let me use their production photos of the show in my video. And William ended up coming coming on to, he, he'll be a guest on the podcast, on the RDU On Stage podcast, which has nothing to do with Broadway World. I'm just saying that for right. the record. But it was kind of like, oh, okay. And, and so... The trust element when you interview a person, I mean, that's a very public example, but I mean, there's times when people will tell me what their next season is going to be before they've revealed it. And just being able to not share that information and know what information is public and what information do you hold, I think that just builds relationships and invites you back to the party. And that, that that's old world school journalism ethics 101, I guess, that I hope I could impart to someone wanting to start out as an arts journalist. We're not covering politics. We're not covering world events. So really nothing we're covering is going to um, be breaking news, so to speak. So it's not worth hurting somebody or violating somebody's trust because they may share things with you in the course of a conversation that you kind of have to go, yeah, I don't think they really meant to say that. Or, "Mm, no, I don't think that's something they really want to share. So I think being mindful, you know, it's kind of funny. That's podcast interview 101. When you review a show, it's a little different because you are being constructive. You are an observer. You're an outside observer, so you're not close to the show. So I think being able to constructively say this worked in a really effective way and this is this didn't work in an effective way that will hurt some people's feelings but I think you also have to be honest so as a reviewer it's a little different but again you're not violating somebody's trust you're just making an observation and an educated assessment on what works and what doesn't work but I I think the integrity piece of it is something that's getting lost in journalism now because of everything happening in our world and even because of paparazzi. I mean, paparazzi is so invasive of people's lives and that's just not the kind of journalist I want to be. And I hope other people wanting to become credible arts journalists, they don't want to be that either. You are not the type of journalist who wants to write an expose. In the case of these interviews on the podcast or written interviews, you and I are trying to make our guests look great. And we have their best interests at heart. And so the idea is to lift up. And it's not just raising them up. It's raising the whole medium up. If you can raise somebody up as an artist, then the next artist might say, oh gosh, I really want to be on that show too, because, or I want to talk to her too, because I see how carefully and mindfully she and tenderly she treated this person or that person and and so I'm not as concerned about going into the studio with her because she's not out to get me or trap me or put me in a negative light at all and I think you know a lot of guests they come in and they do have baggage and so if they know that you've done your research maybe you have found out something about them that is not favorable I had a person that I interviewed who had been falsely accused of something terrible and he had been in jail. When I interviewed him, I could tell there was a little bit of a barrier there. And it was kind of like, no, I don't want to tell that story. That story is for somebody else's show. I want to tell the inspiring story about how you got out of the projects and found yourself on stage doing 4,000 shows. I think disarming people that way so that they will feel comfortable sharing their story with you without thinking like, oh, she's trying to trap me, trap me. (laughs) Right. She's getting me to say something I don't want to say. 
you and I approach this in the same way that it, it's kind of this, <laughs> my, my son says it's very NPR. Mm-hmm. It's this very NPR way of storytelling where you're telling somebody's story. Mm-hmm. You're not trying to, it's not an ex, you know, this isn't inside edition. Right. This is much more like Terry Gross and Fresh Air <laughs> than, than inside edition if people need kind of a point of reference. Is there anything else that you would like to talk about that we haven't covered? You know, I I just feel grateful to be part of this amazing theater community. The theater community here has been so welcoming and open to me. I mean, I was an outsider. I was a stranger. I wasn't an actor that suddenly decided to become a journalist. I wasn't, you know, somebody in this world. And the fact that people here have just been so welcoming and accepting and open and loving has been really, it it really has meant the world to me, not only professionally, but as a person. I went through a really hard time a year and a half ago, two years ago, my brother passed away and it was a really difficult time for me and my family. And I was having a lot of anxiety and I feel like the theater community here and their acceptance and openness and welcoming really just nurtured me in a way that makes me want to give back in any way I can. I think that's something I hope will get across to people because it is a lovely community here of artists, Um, visual artists also, but specifically the theater artists that I've met are just pretty fantastic people. So um, I want people to know that. And I want people to go to the theater and support local theater, support Deepak, support the national shows. These are great tours that are coming through here, but also support the local artists and the local theaters that are doing really important, innovative, interesting work. Because behind that interesting work are people who are just pouring their hearts and souls into it. And I think that's really special. So go to the theater. I'll see you at the theater. That's how I end every podcast episode. So (laughs) we'll see you at the theater. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you. For more information and to become a patron, please visit artistsoapbox.org. For any questions or just to say hello, email us at artistsoapbox at gmail.com and check us out on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook.